Welcome to the Chess Underground. Eccentricities, peculiarities, and theoretical novelties. Okay, welcome back. It is September, a cold, crisp, windy day here in Illinois. Um, Gopal, what's what's cracking? Um, I don't know. So maybe uh, maybe a very good review that we got. That that sounds like it's cracking. Yeah. So okay, let's start there. Uh, welcome back. I should should say to the critically acclaimed, award winning podcast, Chess Underground. That feels really good to say. You're Pete Karyanis, and I am Ben Johnson. We're, <laughs> we're so good at this podcasting gig that we can't even properly introduce ourselves. Uh, I am your host, National Master Petros Karyanis. Uh, this is uh, co-host... Paul Ben Johnson Menon, as Go they call me in the streets. <laughs> We love Ben. Uh, this is National Master Go Paul Menon. We are here uh, with the Chess Underground podcast and a couple of interesting show no- show notes. We almost never have news about the show, um, so forgive my excitement because this like never happens. Um, but at the U.S. Open this year, the Chess Journalists of America saw fit to award us honorable mention uh, in the best podcast category. Go Paul! Congratulations. Uh, congratulations to you, sir. Um, oh, it's, it's obviously all you because I've been doing this show for four years. You joined in 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 the start of 2022, and we won an award immediately thereafter. Yeah, I mean, you know, is in my time moonlighting as Ben Johnson, I've learned a thing or two about being an award-winning podcast host. Um, yeah, I mean, I have to say, I, I was kind of surprised. I didn't think anybody was listening to this. <laughs> like, That's exactly how I felt. Like almost like yeah, shouting into the void. Right? All of our drivel, like. It's and with so many chess podcasts out there, I mean, I can only feel honored that Chess Essentials, uh, you know, even gave ours uh, a listen. You know, it was really nice. Oh yeah, so okay, let's go there. So the award-winning part was Chess Journalists of America. We thank you, CJA, uh, great organization. Um, but the critically acclaimed part was uh, recently uh, Chess Essentials at Chess Essentials uh, underscore on Twitter. Uh, posted a review of best podcasts, a very subjective review, to be fair. I will be honest, Gopal, I started reading it. I got to his introduction, and in his introduction, he um, produces some criteria by which he's going to judge the podcast. Yes. And his second criteria was preparation. (laughs) (laughs) So Uh, (laughs) I got to that, and I thought, "Eh, well... Perhaps this is not going to go so well for us. (laughs) Right. But then when you saw... You have a BTW? Yeah. 
Oh, no, 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 no. I, yeah, well, I was saying BTW to him if uh, preparation was in there. Um, yeah, BTW, you might be disappointed. But, I mean, I bet you were pretty happy when you saw the third criteria of, um, you know, do I want to make love to these podcast hosts or not? <laughs> and the answer, no, I'm just kidding. That was never in there. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> third criteria was guest of the podcast, so I guess maybe that's you. So that's kind of the same category? Uh, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, thank you again. If you guys uh, want to go check it out, just look up at chess Essentials on Twitter. Uh, the handle is at chess Essentials underscore, uh, really interesting article. Um, he, he mentioned a couple podcasts that I was unfamiliar with that I definitely want to go and give a listen to. Um, he mentioned my, uh, two favorite chess podcasts that I do listen to regularly, which of course is chess feels from, uh, JJ and Julia and, the Chicken Chess Club, have you listened to them yet? No, not yet, but I will soon. Because that list uh, highlighted it for me. It did, and I, I was listening to it already. I, I think they're very entertaining. I'm a big fan of Gustafsson. We were talking about ICC, old school blitz days. You may remember God Gusty. Right, of course. Um, so I really enjoy it. Uh, I love Froissine and the French accent. And, um, you know, of course, Peter Heine Nielsen is uh, sort of the adult in the room. Um, you need, you need those from time to time. Do you think maybe we could find a third person to be an adult in our room? Um, no, I don't know. I think <laughs> we'd run them over to be honest. <laughs> the freight train is coming. The daddy train's coming. Oh man. Sp- speaking of which, you know, I, um, yeah, I have, we're, we're going to talk more about my kids later. Uh, so that's a little teaser because, uh, yeah, it's coming. Um, but our topic du jour, it, before we before we introduce that, anything more on the uh, you know the old yield chess essentials um, epic pod, podcast review? It was fifteen thousand words. It was quite a read. Yeah, I was going to say what a labor of love that was. Like definitely a passion project and super thorough. Like you know, big big um, hats off to him. Yeah, I feel like um, the best products that I personally put out are labors of love. Uh, so it's great to see other people who are passionate. And, oh, is this where we're talking about your children? Oh, wait, no, no <laughs> never mind. Wow. Zing. Okay. Um, all right. So the, the, I'm just going to, I'm just going to go because now I'm off, I'm off my game here, but the topic du jour, Gopal, uh, unrelated um, to uh, child rearing and production is an interesting one. And I'll, I'll give a little background on how it came about. And then I'm really curious to hear where you want to begin. The topic that we're going to talk about today is, quote, do no harm, end quote. So it's kind of an interesting concept in terms of chess. We brought it up on a previous podcast and we kind of went all around it, but we neither, neither you nor I actually hit this nail on the head when right. we were talking about playing equal positions, Catronius's book, that sort right. of thing. We kind of danced around it. We didn't really get there. Mm-hmm. And I thought of it in the context of chess, number one, playing games, uh, improving, but also sort of in a broader context we'll talk about today in, in almost a meta way, the idea of do no harm um, in life. <clears throat> um, and, and we're going to discuss some of that as well. I went back and looked to go, Paul, it's interesting. I looked up the Hippocratic Oath because mm-hmm. of all the preparation we do. Um, okay. <laughs> I wanted to see, I wanted to see, and and it's interesting that this is actually not in the Hippocratic Oath, the first do no harm. It is in some, some oaths that doctors take, um, Mm. but it's from some different, uh, document that Hippocrates, the physician wrote. 
Do you want to know how the Hippocratic Oath actually begins? It's kind of it's kind of fun. Yes. It begins I feel like, like you want me to say yes. I yes. do. I really do. Thank you for playing along. No problem. <laughs> it begins like something you and I might say at a at a party back in the day. Are you ready? Uh-huh. Um I swear by Apollo the physician and Esclopus and Hygieia and Panacea and all the gods and goddesses at my as my witnesses. <laughs> oh. That oh, is yeah, the opening line to the Hippocratic Oath. Back before we lost our virginity, got it. So we're 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 swearing by all the Greek gods um, that according to our ability and judgment, we will keep this oath. That is Excellent. the beginning. Yeah. I thought you were a proud anti-frat person. Well, no, the idea I'm I, you're thinking of Greek in a different term than I'm thinking of Greek. Right, but you mentioned I'm thinking parts, of Greek so as why. my nationality. Oh no, I mean, don't you just like begin uh, any enjoyable endeavor by swearing to the gods? Apollo, particularly the physician. I mean, yeah. Well, yeah. When I read that uh, Ultimate Guide to Chess podcast, for sure, because I, like I said, when we saw preparation, I thought we'd get a bad review. You made a, a proclamation to the various uh, relevant deities and and minor deities and yes. semi, semi 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 deities. Yeah, like demigods and Hygieia and Panacea. Yeah, uh, Hydrangea, you know, all that stuff. Okay, so do no harm. Uh, where do you want to go? Chess first? Where? where do yeah, we let's, let's talk about the chest. All right. We're playing a game. Where's this relevant? Um, well, yeah, so like, you, you know, for those who haven't listened to the uh, episode where we brought up uh, how to play equal positions, um, basically, uh, this is a book by Vasilios Cotronius. Also, interesting connection there. Uh, uh, yes, a fellow the, Greek. Yeah. Right, exactly. And yeah, so one of the, it starts with like basically this principle I really love that uh, the conventional wisdom of a bad plan is better than no plan at all. It's Introduced just, like, by somebody. Was that Kotov and Curious? Frank Marshall, but, okay. but, you know, like a lot of, um, you know, piece of chess advice. Throughout the years, like it, it was. Uh, I mean, yeah, attributed okay, to various sources, confirmed to be none. Yeah, and then and then just like kind of kept being reproduced um, sure. over and over again. So, yeah, but this, but like, how could something that could be counterproductive or harmful um, be good? You know, for you. And okay, there is a logic that, like, you know, you'll play with more purpose. You know, it could have a good practical value. Um, but the reality is that like in equal positions, you know, you have to first strive to not be worse and then, you know, just fight for every little inch, uh, you know, improves, you know, your pieces a little bit, maybe just prevent your opponent from making a tiny gain in space, uh, being super vigilant like this and executing what Catronius calls micro plans uh, comprises a phase of play uh, called uh, move by move um, mode. So, yeah, it's interesting because when I hear is. move by move, like in a broadcast, or um, you know, it's one of uh, Grandmaster Peter Leko's, uh favorite things to uh, to say. Um, I think when I hear that, I think of it sort of referencing almost forcing play, right? Uh, yeah. Like, like we have to sure. take this move by move. We have to take this, um, 
like we have to really we have to understand that the position the position is fairly volatile. Is this is that your interpretation as well? Um, no. I mean, I I would say that phase of of play is like actually maybe because yeah, I would call it like concrete play, which yes, yeah, that's that's a better word. Thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, move by move mode, I, I believe. Um, is just kind of attached to no particular narrative um, and your willingness to reassess the position as events unfold. Yes, that's interesting. Maybe it's easier to understand it by understanding what it is not, right? Like, or or the the opposite, which would be something more like long-term strategic where we understand uh, a more overarching narrative about the game. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um but yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Those semantics are a little confusing. It, they are, and and honestly, that's what's interesting. When I when I teach chess to uh, to kids, one of the first things that I talk about is how chess sort of has its own language. Now, in that context, what I mean by chess has its own language is I mean some of the terms and terminology that you use. Uh, you know, for example, if you were to walk up uh, to someone who wasn't familiar with the game and said. Oh man, you know, I castled queenside and I got some action down the sea foul before I was able to penetrate on the seventh rank and get my pigs on the seventh and cause a bunch of mayhem. They would have no idea what you get were talking about. Get your hogs about. on the seventh. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> they would have no concept of what I was talking about, right? Right. And they would just look at me with a blank stare. But if I said that to a chess player, they they would be able to follow that sentence. But then if right, we take exactly. it a step further, that's sort of like the entry level chess has its own language, right? Uh-huh. But then if we take that a step further, there's there's also the language of the chess subculture where we have things like move per move and concrete and, um, you know, t- terms and, and phrases. There's almost like a phraseology of chess, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like I lost the thread here or uh, I'm trying to think of more examples, but you know what I mean? Right, exactly. I mean, uh, I think. Just a quick shout out to Chess Stars is necessary. Not only were they the publishers of of, uh, the, of uh, this book, How to Play Equal Positions, but they have their own very unique uh, phraseology. Can you think of an example? I, I'm 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 I know exactly what you mean, but I'm like right there like, struggling to. He has in. not any advantage uh, for the like you know just any anything like that. Just very interesting kind of. Um, it's it's I believe you would see it most often in the books of Khalifman. Mm. Uh, for them, he's been a very, very prolific author. Yeah, that's so that if you think about it, the chess phraseology, that, I love the example you gave. He has not any advantage. The chess phraseology is unique because essentially what it does is it says more with implication, right? Like mm-hmm. when you hear he has not any advantage, there's sort of the implication. There's a few implications. The first one is, um, as opposed to just saying the position is equal, he has not any advantage almost kind of implies like dot, 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 and might be a little worse or dot, 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 and might have to work hard. Right. To be worse. Sort of like one, one thing that you'll see a lot in, in more uh, chess books is uh, white has less than nothing or something like, like that. Yeah, exactly. And then there's like this implication also almost like a, like a, Trying to, I'm struggling to come up with the right way to phrase this. Almost like a negative implication, like you mm-hmm. know, dot dot dot. And maybe they should have if they played better. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, or if they tried some other critical move. Does that make sense? There's, there's just like yeah, a lot absolutely. of. There's a lot right. of um, 
damage being done behind those words. There's a lot of weight being carried by those words. Absolutely. And kind of like coming back to um, equal uh, playing equal positions, it it basically also implies that you, right, you might be drifting into becoming worse, which is a very common uh, way to, you know, like you said, lose the thread in a lot of equal positions where you just don't really make any obvious mistakes, but your play just doesn't really have a lot of purpose, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Right. And so which is better? Is it better to play without purpose, but also without mistakes? Or is it better to play with purpose, but with the introduction of mistakes slash potential mistakes? I mean, that's where uh, chess is such an interesting game, right? You know, you could obviously from a purely theoretical or analytical standpoint, right? You want to play without mistakes all the time. But um, sometimes like you're really just uh, feeling it with the moment or you can um, like Igor Kovalenko uh, back when he had a a very big rise, like all the way up to 2700 at some point, or at least very close. uh, He talked about reading his opponent. Um, but he couldn't exactly describe what that was. But I mean, any any uh, experienced chess player already knows what that's like. Um, so you know, sometimes you can read the the moment like that, and, and depending on how you're feeling, you know, you you do have to take some of those chances every now and then. So it's interesting because when I first brought this topic to you, and we were discussing sort of pre-show and pre-recording, <clears throat> you mentioned also a quote from the Art of the Middle Game. Uh, do you Actually, that? I found out it wasn't it wasn't uh, the art huh. of the middle game. So uh, I got it from, <clears throat> or I've seen it before, but the last time I had seen it was in uh, a four part, I believe, series by Greg Serper, who writes for who writes articles for Chess.com. Very very interesting articles, um, a lot of them. But so. An example yeah, so, of, so catch of us point. up on the idea. Let's let's start with oh, the yeah. quote and, and what he was saying. So the quote was, he said he he attributed it to either Miles or Bronstein, and he said my position um, was worse, and more the most important thing was I didn't try to make it better. Yes, which is at first glance like almost a, a bizarre, contradictory thing to say. Right. So break there, it down for us. Well, yeah, there's several things, right, that could go into that. For instance, um, you know, the tendency to lash out in a worse position to try to to do something, um, you know, that, that could almost certainly end in disaster, right? And, uh, yeah, I mean, like, also kind of going deeper into that, uh, it's important in some of these like worse positions to be patient and await further developments and kind of like Catronius said, be extremely vigilant and play move by move, which by the way, the more I think about that, like it kind of does mean like concrete play, just the nature of the play is quieter, you know? Right. Um, that, that's sort of rather than would... forcing play. Yes. Quiet, but concrete. That's a great way of describing it. I couldn't quite get there in my, in my head, but that's a great way of describing mm-hmm. it. But yeah, so I, I thought that was a very uh, interesting quote that like, you know, my position was worse, but most importantly, like, I didn't try to make it better. Now, there were a few examples in that article uh, series that I really liked. Like, there was a famous game between Ulf Anderson and uh, the famous Michael uh, Bassman, Baseman, mm-hmm. the I am from England, 
famous for his eccentric style of play. Okay. But yeah, in a, in a Queens Indian position, a type of structure that's kind of gone out of fashion, uh, like a G3 Queens Indian where black plays D5 and white exchanges the C pawn, uh, CD5, ED5, that structure. Kind of out of fashion because the bishop on B7 is not really so great. But anyway, like, yeah, Basman got the worst of that. And he literally moved his king from like G8 to H8 to H7, like over and over again, and somehow ended up winning. <laughs> How does that even work? Well, he had no constructive plan. So, you know, basically any, uh, like, you'll you'll see this, uh, I think an even more stark example was, was Serper's uh, game against Nakamura, where he tried this uh, this line in the against the a6 slav where he exchanged on d5 and like he had all his pieces developed but he had zero um, advantage at all and so he tried to look for a plan but he found that there was no plan to be found um, basically as we know one of the key ingredients for finding a plan would be looking at your active pawn moves or pawn breaks and the only active pawn moves or pawn breaks that he had were creating weaknesses. So that would make his position worse. So upon, yeah, when he thought about it, all he, he realized all he had was just to shuffle back and forth. I think he moved King G1, H1 back and forth and just several shuffling moves. And Black's, White's position stood almost totally still while Black's position, you know, got more and more developed, like double rooks on the C file and so on. Um, but yeah, I mean, his position already had no weaknesses. Um, right. And as you know, like sometimes when you're, <clears throat> uh, when you have a little bit less space, but you have no weaknesses, you know, you're okay. And you can maybe, uh, sometimes you could even exchange a set of minor pieces to, you know, get some breathing room, right? Yeah, so it's interesting. I was going to ask a question and you're, you're kind of answering it for me here. But the question I was going to ask is if we go back to that quote, right? Um, his position was worse, but it was very important to not try to make it better. Right. So then the the question that it becomes is, what do you try to do? <laughs> well, yeah, in this case, uh, it's in this it's pr- case, it's sort of providing like what not to do, right? What here's what not to do, but then what do you do? Well, yeah, I mean, you have to be vigilant. I mean, it, that that is what you what you do, right? You don't try to like force things and you you're vigilant and you just fight for every inch of the board, um, being very vigilant to your opponent's small, like improving ideas. And I mean, it might not seem like much, but if that's all you have to do, then, you know, you have to do what the position wants you to do sometimes. Yeah. That's you know, interesting. You I can't think fight it, <clears throat> you know, there's a natural tendency and it's very logical because one of the things that we have to teach students and, I would say is, is a big focus for me, especially for like that club level, you know, class player, 1400, 1600 level is trying to get them to be active and, and seek counterplay, particularly when they're under pressure right. or under attack. And there is like sort of another layer to that where you can't always be active. You can't always be seeking counterplay. Right. Sometimes you have to have that option. Yes, you you have to have both options, right? You have to have right. that option to see counterplay, but you also have to have that. Uh, I, I used to take guitar lessons, and my guitar teacher, every time we'd learn a new riff, he'd say, "Okay, you know that's that's a new tool in your toolkit. That's a new tool in your tool bag. Absolutely. Like you can bust out something like that, yeah, or that. You, you know what I mean? Like you now that you have that 
that pattern or that, mm-hmm. you know, that finger method, whatever it may be, that's a new tool you have. And so like one tool is counterplay, right? But right. another tool is also recognizing when you should like when you should uh, basically turtle up, like crawl into your shell and just try right. hold. And then yet another tool would be kind of what we're talking about, right? There's, there is another line drawn here. Yeah. This is kind of like a last resort. I would say do nothing. Like I can't remember the last time that I've done that, like, you know, shuffle back and forth for like yeah, almost 10 moves, like in succession. And, you know, I can't remember the last time I did that and it ended well and it ended well. Like I can't even remember the last time I did that period, you know? Yeah. But certainly, but, like, there are games where, right? I mean, I can, I, I can, as a concept, I can think about it, like, gen- generally speaking, and think, yeah, I've done that before. Right. Yeah. There's no constructive plan, right? All your pawn breaks are, you know, this would be so much easier if I if I had a board, but like, yeah, if you have a board, but yeah, yeah. right. But they, uh, but go, Paul. It's a podcast. You you paint the picture for the ah. with your with your okay. So pawns on D four, E three. No, I'm just kidding. But um. And yeah, coming back to what we were saying about like uh, teaching, you know, players that, you know, you to have this tool of counterplay, right? I feel like a tendency, especially for kids, and uh, I mean, it don't have to necessarily be kids, but I've noticed it with them and, and just less experienced players in general, mm-hmm. uh, they will tend to like, let's say in a rook end game, you know, they could remain passive rather than just you know, chucking a pawn to activate the rook, for example. Um, like this this hanging on to material, like what's right there in front of them and not really thinking about the future, just like kind of underestimating the opponent's pressure. Um, I remember once uh, this grandmaster that I've uh, worked with uh, lost a game to another grandmaster. And then he he had a choice in a rook end game to play like, Rook B8 to attack to protect his uh, pawn, but his rook okay. would be totally passive. Uh, or he could play Rook C8, take the open file, but just you have to sacrifice your B7 pawn. Mm-hmm. And so he said, "Yeah, and like a kid, I just played Rook B8." You know. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I actually have a bad memory of that myself. Um, it was a Rook and Pawn in game when I was like uh, maybe eighteen, nineteen hundred, and I was playing a twenty-one hundred. And my mentor at the time, uh, shout out to Boris Ilyasov, uh, he was like 2450 and he saw me make that exact move. I think I was white and it was rook b1 instead of going to an open file and, and grabbing activity. Um, and, you know, the golden rule of rook and pawn in games is activity of the rook. Right. Um, and after the game, I remember Boris was reviewing it with me and we got to that moment and he just shook his head and he said, no, what are you saying? Your rook is worse only a pawn. So he was, you know, right. he was basically just saying, like, you you turned your your active piece, your rook, into the value of the pawn that it's defending. Uh, yeah, I love that. Um, you know, speaking of rook and pawn endgames, I feel like you probably have seen this one if you take a look at the position. But do you remember the game uh, Tarash versus Rubenstein, uh, 1911? Is this the famous Rubenstein rook game where you get the, the rook blockading the pawn on the a- A7 or whatever it was, or A2 maybe if it was white? Oh, no, I believe that was uh, Capablanca. Yeah, it was the rook on a6, I think you're talking about. Yes, blocking, blocking the, the a7. a7. Then black has the pawn on a7, and the white rook is on a6. Yeah, it was I like thought that was called Capablanca. the Rubenstein rook, no? Uh, maybe. I mean, your your primary source for the rook endgames was Smyslov and Levinfish, right? 
Sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to remember there was, but there was some position where it was like that, you know, the Rook patrolling the, the enemy third rank. No, this one is, is a bit more extreme. Um, okay. You should, yeah. So Rubenstein's black and he's under some pressure in, in a Rook and Pawn end game. And yeah, it looks like he's about to lose material and he does, but he gives his opponent, he sacrifices two pawns to give his opponents, uh, to give his opponent three connected passers on the queen side. But he gets to activate his king, his rook, and he gets to use the one asset in his position, the his pawn majority. He has a tandem of pawns on f5 and e4 in the center to all kind ah. of combine. And yes, almost, I remember this game, yeah. Yeah, it looks like white is is uh, fighting for a draw, even, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and until he very wisely bails out. But that example always... Uh, makes a, such a big impact on me every time I see it. And it's one of the first things I will always show students that uh, show that problem to uh, who, who do struggle to develop some sort of active counterplay. But um, it's, it's amazing like how often you'll see like after they've sacrificed one pawn, um, there's a situation where Tarash attacks another pawn with rook a six a pawn on B six. And if he takes that, you get three connected passers and, You'll be so surprised how how many less experienced players, even uh, after they've done all this, they'll play like rook b8 or rook d6, just protecting the pawn, like not in the spirit of the position at all. I am all, I am I am always surprised at like how often uh, you see like someone who knows. I, I actually did this exact same thing one time. It was like a rook and pawn in game that I knew. Uh, yeah, a, we all have. It was a rook and pawn in game that I've taught students a million times, and it's the you know it's the defensive technique where. If you're the defender, you know, king and rook versus king, rook, pawn, you just put your rook on the third rank and sit there, right? Actually, that's a great example of the sit there and do nothing, sit there and shuffle that we're talking about. Right. And you just wait for them to push their pawn to the third rank, and then you drop your rook all the way back and start delivering checks from behind, right? Mm -hmm. I had a game one time where I intentionally traded into that. I was much worse, but I intentionally traded into rook king versus rook king pawn because i knew how to draw it and i knew it was a dead draw i put my rook on the third rank and then like five moves later with an increment with a 30 second increment i moved my rook off the third rank for no reason (laughs) oh my god (laughs) and my opponent immediately grabbed the third rank and then i actually ended up still drawing the game i had some weird i think it's called like a short side long side yeah uh, yeah, that's a more complicated one right it's much more complicated but i managed to pull it off anyway um and yeah, it was like, uh, I, I just, why do we do that? Why do we know? Like I, I have probably taught like literally hundreds of students that exact rook and pawn in game. And then somehow, <laughs> somehow I immediately get it in a, in a real tournament game where it matters. And I, and I yeah. blundered after three moves. Well, you know, it, it's, it's interesting because I've, I've seen this a lot with myself, not only in chess, but like with pool and like, I, it really comes down to like trusting it, you know, just, just trusting that what your you know, your brain is judging as correct. Like that's what you have to do. Like, you know, it's what you have to do. And yeah, that's just a really hard thing to do. Um, sometimes just, uh, just trusting it almost with your subconscious. Quick note about like naming, because uh, this, this reminded me of uh, something that I saw recently on Twitter. So we can have an impromptu go Paul reacts to chess Twitter. Oh. Um, have, have you heard of the Vancoura position? V-A-N-C-U-R-A? Yeah. yeah. You have. Okay. So I, 
I had never heard it called that before. I had never heard that name, like the Vancouver mm. name. And I was like, there was there was a tweet about it related to major events in, in recent chess news. You can just go look up Vancouver mm-hmm. and I'm sure you'll figure out what I'm talking about. V-A-N-C-U-R-A. Yeah, I've seen so, C-H-U-R-A too, but yeah. Okay, right, yeah. I I had never heard that name before. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's a typically American thing where we just like, don't name things or don't uh, whatever. But I, as soon as I looked it up, I'm I, like, oh yeah, yeah I, I know that position. Yeah. Sure. No, sorry. No, I have something to say. I want to come back to that, the whole naming thing, but yeah, go on. Yeah. So, so basically um, it's interesting because for example, I had never heard of the Volga Gambit before because we call it the, the Banco Gambit. Right. Yes. So I wonder like what other things and, and names are, are lost in translation. Well, this is the thing, though. I mean, like you were talking about how chess uh, has, its, has its own language, of course, but mm-hmm. um, it's also kind I of mean, like localized, right? Right. And there are certain things I feel like are just commonly understood among strong players. Like, for instance, uh, let's say you play uh, in the Spanish bishop b5, a6. Bishop A4. Is it the Spanish or the Roy Lopez since we're on naming? Ah, uh, okay. Well, yeah, there, <laughs> there you go. So yeah, Bishop A4, Knight F6, Castle, Knight take E4. Like, what is that to you? Oh, okay. So sorry, go through the moves again. I interrupted Bishop you. B5, A6, Bishop yes. A4, Knight F6, Castle, Knight take E4. Um, I guess some kind of like open Spanish. Right. That's the open Spanish, right? So yeah. um, yes, but I, and so... I overheard a conversation. I was at a blitz tournament um, the other day mm-hmm. and I heard somebody and it's more like the people that are newer to chess that do this. And they were, t- he was talking to one, one of my friends. And so they were talking about the position with Bishop B five, a six Bishop, a four knight of six castle mm-hmm. B five Bishop B three. And now either Bishop B seven or Bishop C five, the arcane arc. Archangel or Archangels, yeah. yes. Um, and so he, this guy was talking about it, and he said, "Oh, and then the computer drew him with uh, the Rui Lopez Morphe defense Archangel variation." That, and then I like immediately did a, a right turn, walked over, and I said, "Okay, who said that?" <laughs> and then I love like, the idea of of Gopal Menon like uh, opening police. Right, exactly. Well, he's and I said, okay. We need look, to get you well, a uniform. Yes. And an opening police. <laughs> uh, yeah, as long as it's I can pull G-mop. it off, just in case I in you know I need to in those moments. But you know, like like an FBI T-shirt, except instead of FBI, it says GMOP. Yeah. Okay, Slash sorry. So you immediately walked started. over there. You, yes. You got your GMOP yeah. outfit on. You, right. You brought the handcuffs and. Well, I. I told him um, that, look, nobody calls Bishop B5, A6, the Morphe defense, okay? Nobody does. It, that's just, in fact, the, it's not even defined yet because after Bishop takes C6 or Bishop A4, and then depending on what Black chooses after Bishop A4, <laughs> that's really what defines the position, right? So why bother calling it, you know, this Morphe defense? <laughs> Oh my gosh! I love, <laughs> and he got a he got a big kick out of it. Like it was, love... it was all good. Like he was like, oh, that's only so virgins funny. say that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's terrible. but it's true. That's terrible. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I guess what what's making me laugh so hard there is that you got incredibly highly specific about at what point the opening could be properly named. Right, exactly. But see, don't you like where's the point that? of definition? Oh, sure. I mean, I get it. It's just really funny to to um to imagine. Oh, that I got so heated about that. Not not just so heated, but also that you then decided to be so specific with the with the offender. Right. About like, no, you must you must get to this juncture at which point you can name it. Well, um, yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, look, I, I, in my defense, like chess Twitter, especially as of late, has been. Um, well, let's be I mean, it's, it's just terrible. So, yeah. And yeah, unfortunately, I got a little bit heated, but it was it was all good. Like this guy knew, you know, it was just none but love between us. So. <laughs> He knew that this person who had taken a sharp right turn immediately changed outfits to his uh, police attire and walked over there to reprimand him about waiting for the appropriate capture to be made before delineating the nomenclature of the opening. Mm-hmm. Um, boy, I lost my I lost my sentence there. It's okay. We yeah. we're smelling what you're farting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah. Na- naming in chess is like a whole other uh, subject. Honestly, I mean it. it that could be its own podcast. I, it could. I've also had um, students approach me and ask me, like, do I know about, you know, X opening? And I'm like, I have no, I, I've never heard of that in my life. And and what it is, is it's like some variation of a, of a well-known opening, like, a, like, let's just say like a Queen's Gambit declined. And what they'll do is they'll go and they'll pull up like the Lee Chess database and play the moves. And then they'll play some random weird move at some juncture and the name will change to something just completely unheard of. And essentially what they're doing is they're just spewing back to you mm-hmm. the name that, that, the, that the database assigns that one variation, right? In, in, yes. In, in but fact, it's just like a sideline in like the Queen's Gambit, basically. Right. I mean, also to, um, you know, it, it, you bring up one of your students, like in one of our camps, uh, actually, a, a certain instructor um not a like a, around 1700 i would say a certain uh well i wouldn't even give the initials right but anyway um i i over i was walking past the the main hall and then oh, doing, I overheard, your, doing your opening police uh rounds uh yeah or trying patrol, to avoid more the, more like trying GMOP to avoid patrol. Working. but um <laughs> but yeah so he said yes and this is called the old sicilian and then i was like what? Did he mean classical, maybe? Classical Sicilian? Well, the position he had on the board was e4, c5, knight f3, knight c6. And again... Okay, so I would uh, consider that like a classical Sicilian probably, right? No, well, it hasn't even it been It hasn't defined been defined yet, yet. right. Yeah, sure. Right, the classical Sicilian, yeah, d4, take, knight take, knight f6, knight c3, then d6. That's then you could call Sicilian. it classical, sure. Right, for sure. And like, but yeah, knight f3, knight c6, like that's, I mean... Yeah, the database calls it that, but nobody good Wait, the, would ever does say the database it. call it the, the old Sicilian? Yeah, if you look on wow. chess tempo, you'll see it. But um Yeah, see, like that's what I mean. I think this this computer age of like and that's I guess that's a, a whole other question. Like why? Why do we feel the need to name openings like that? I wonder. I'm not sure, but you know, sometimes I'm really uh I'm really grateful for it. In fact, uh, a certain meme that we've bonded over, uh, made by the love of my life, Julia Rios mm-hmm. slash Ben Johnson, um, was, it was one of those, uh, the template of the meme was dad. Why is my name blank? 
oh, that's because your mom loves blank. Uh, thanks, oh, Dad. And, and, no but problem. it's like an opening. It's like an opening. Right. Game, right. Yeah. No problem. Slav defense, modern Alapin <laughs> variation. Check. Kraus, Weissbaden, sharp line. Bishop take e4, f take e4, knight take e4, bishop d2, queen take d4, and then goes it goes on for a few more moves. Those are my favorite when like a super like obscure sideline also then starts just like naming random moves at the end of the line. As like part of the name of the variation. Yes, exactly. No, that, also those memes that are great. If you don't know what we're talking about, go do go find it. And yes, that's one that's a position that you've had quite a few times with both white and black, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Correct. Interesting. All right. Yeah, um, we got we got really off the do no harm thing. Uh, let, let's bring it back. Let's let's connect the two. Na- chess naming and doing no harm in your position. What does well, I mean, go home I mean, and the op- naming... opening police have to say about this? Well, it kind of extends out of my jurisdiction. Also, <laughs> I, I don't really like the police, so I, I let's let's okay. Go Paul Minning, uh, opening uh, curator, opening inspector, opening inspector. Very good, I like it. Inspector Menon. I, I sense like an Inspector Gadget ripoff in the near future called Inspector Menon, but with chess. Yeah, but I in all the uh, Malayalam movies uh, from Kerala, India, where my family is from, I think that's what they you know that's probably what oh I Inspector I Gadget, but with inspector. chess. Inspector yes. Menon. Okay. What would your outfit be? We, we remember that Inspector Gadget had like the long gray trench coat with a gray hat and like a million different gadgets that, you know, popped out of all of his different um, pieces of attire. Wow. He must have been a big hit at the playgrounds. Um, so I think my attire would be any sort of breakaway clothing. So that you could quickly change into your, your Inspector Menon. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Kind of like Clark Kent or... Right. Or whatever, or like an NBA player coming out after the uh, the introductions, right? And they like rip off the the training right. jersey. Yes. Okay. Okay. Anyway, uh, sorry. <clears throat> uh, we. Uh, but yeah, Moving so we on. were talking about the <laughs> uh, the naming. I mean, it already kind of uh, was interesting to define uh, like what it was like to do no harm or to you know go move by move or and versus playing concretely and all that stuff. So it's like it's almost like perpetually intertwined uh, within these things. Yeah, I, it, it has been. Um, yeah. Okay, we, we've got more segments, Gopal. Final thoughts, anything anything to leave or was that it? Should we drop it there? Um, drop I, it like I, it's hot I think so. Right there. Unless, unless yes. you have, yes. Unless, yeah, do you, do you want to drop it like it's hot? Yeah, let's drop it like it's hot. I think that's a good way to wrap it up. So, Excellent. Um, We've got two more segments, and and one of them is going to be incredibly quick. Um, The first one uh, is, of course, Gopal, as you know, we introduced a segment uh, a few shows ago about uh, chess battles, like mythical chess battles, I guess we could call it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I have an interesting mythical chess battle today. This one was not really submitted by anyone, but it's like an interesting ontological query. So here's, okay. I'm going to lay out the story for you and tell you what happened. And then we can decide if we want to accept this suggestion or not. Uh-huh. And if not, we'll just have to make one up on the spot with Gopal Menon, Chess Inspector. Uh-huh. Um, so I, one, of my, one of my younger students, uh, she had a question for me one day. She asked me, she said, you know, Coach Beat, um, who do you think like the strongest girl chess player is? 
And I gave what I think is probably the conventional answer, which would be. Judith uh, Polgar. That's what I said. Yep. And she said, do you think that Judith Polgar could beat Princess Elsa in a chess game? Hmm. I, I honestly don't know. Uh, I've never seen Frozen. I think I declined the opportunity to see that with my niece. <laughs> but why? <laughs> uh, I mean, why not? Inspector Menon, chess inspector, does not like Frozen. I had inspecting to do. Uh, understand. That's why. Okay, you're busy. So should we but take you this have one chi- on? But you have children. I do. I, mean, I have three girls. So uh, Feel free to give your thoughts on that. I have no, I, I really would have nothing to add. Okay. So should we take this one on or should we make one up on the spot with Inspector Men and Chess Instructor? Chess Inspector. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's entirely up to you, buddy. Oh, this is so tough. I want to answer this wanna, question. For okay, me. so answer it and then we'll make one up. But, but do it hashtag real quick. Okay, hashtag real quick. Here, here's what I think. So I have three children, as you know, and this is what I alluded to earlier. And all three of them, um, well, I have four, four children, excuse me, and three of them are girls is what I meant to say. And even the the one who is uh, who is a boy also really enjoys Frozen. Mm-hmm. And I think what makes this one so interesting is because, if I'm not mistaken, is this our first real person versus mythical figure conversation? Uh, I mean, unless you one? count Andre the Giant versus Michael Scott, then... Oh, that's a good point. Although we did kind of consider, if I remember correctly... We did kind of consider some of Andre the Giant's like acting roles and stuff, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. So that that would be a, a possibility. Mm-hmm. Okay. So here's the the ten second analysis. And actually, what's interesting is I can just tell you what I answered the question to her as, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the way that I answered the question to her um, was I I kind of turned it around and I said, well. <laughs> Do you think Princess Elsa could beat you to Polkar? <laughs> wow, that's a terrible question, especially when she hasn't seen uh you did play, Polkars. right? I, I by know the way, and, really good books. Strike Like You Did by Charles Hairtan. I have it actually right next to me on my desk. Um, look at this same guy got, that wrote Forcing Chess Moves, huh? We get a book recommendation out of a, a hypothetical uh yes, a hypothetical exactly. Language. No, it, amazing book. You know, and I sort of reminded her, I was like, you know, I, I told I gave her a little bit of information about Judith. I said, Well, you know, she's she broke 2700. She just recently beat Magnus Carlsen. I'm like, you see, did you see that Blitz game where she beat Magnus in like six yeah. moves or something? I was like, so do you think that, do you think Princess Elsa would have a chance? Mm-hmm. Um, and her reply, which I thought was very fitting, especially for age, just said, well, Princess El- Elsa can freeze anything. <laughs> oh, okay. And I thought about, I thought about like how, how applicable that was to like a chess position, right? Oh, yeah, you have like a pawn on A5 just, freezing A6 and B7 or something like that. Yes, exactly. Or if you can just, like, lock down your opponent's position and, like, clamp, like, almost like a boa constrictor, right? We've seen games like that from top-level players. Right. Yeah, I, I remember, actually, like, uh, Nikola uh, Mitkov, Grandmaster that I, I've worked for for quite some time now, uh, he is a one of the world's leading specialists in the bishop's opening. Mm-hmm. And in the line... E4, E5, bishop, C4. Yes, correct. So, like, mm-hmm. in one line, e4, e5, bishop, c4, knight, f6, d3, knight, c6, knight, c3, knight, a5. Uh, white will often allow black to take the bishop and double the pawns on the c-file. But he playing against Lazaro Bruzon in a sort of a, a Wimbledon knockout-style tournament in Mexico, 
he got the structure of um, from that line, like pawns on a5, b4, knight on c5 versus pawns on a6, b7, c6. And oh, it's like dream, just dream so, structure, yeah. Right, exactly. Yeah, Bruzon was just so flustered. He said, I, I can't believe you get this every time against me, you know? <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Oh, man, that's good. I, so, I, I've had some of my most satisfying games have involved like things like that, where you just have like, oh, a absolutely. structure to like, they poke can't around do against. Yeah. And the bishop is just sitting on C8, like, yeah. just guarding the pawn. But so, I mean, what do, what do we, what can we infer from this? Like, does this mean Elsa has a profound mastery of like pawn play, pawn structure? I would think so. So I, here, here's, here's, I guess maybe if we want to like m- make a conclusion with our hashtag 10 second analysis, if, if the, if the event, obviously no, you is like a very dynamic player, right? Right. It has a reputation. Um, so if the game can be steered into more dynamic waters, perhaps that's where, yeah. that's where you comes out on top. But if it's more of like a positional, like almost like grindy thing, maybe Elsa's ability to just freeze anything impacts the match yeah and also too if we kind of think about uh this sort of fire versus ice mentality um you know like i I like that i like that yes like okay i feel like a lot of i mean okay obviously you don't get to where uh you did polgar did by being like a one-dimensional of course player right she could do it all um but a, a weakness throughout history i would say with uh a lot of these very tactical players, uh, Nezhmedinov was somebody that really comes to mind doing this. I'm thinking of a game with Anand versus, or Yudit Polgar as white against Anand, where she like uh, spoiled her position in the search for complications. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, yeah, she could have just had some normal position, but just took on some compromise structure just for the sake of like some doubled like in a, a typical classical Karakon structure, she just doubled her pawns on the F file for some vague attack on the G file, you know? Yeah. And yeah, Nezhmedinov was often uh, accused of this too, like just to trying to do that. And if... Uh, Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, Elsa is as cold-blooded or, you know, cold as ice as we say she is, then... You know, yeah, that could be. You can a, a big you can problem. hammer those positions, right? Like you can execute them very well. Yeah, for sure. I'm just concerned about the arbiter intervention about uh, <laughs> about like no the no use of magic uh, at the chess. Well, board. yeah, she could. Uh, I mean, well, yeah, because then I mean, I guess Elsa could theoretically freeze the arbiter as well, and then you and need, then that uh, would solve that problem. And then, you know, maybe this this is a, a future, this is kind of a segue maybe to a future uh, fictional matchup, but um, I don't know, maybe some characters from the Amazon show The Boys. Oh, come and deal with the ice problem? Right, exactly. Yeah. Okay, yeah, that would be it. Okay, let's let's definitely come up with one for next time involving some of the characters from The Boys. I like right. that. I like that. Knowing our users, if you have any matchups will. you'd like to see with uh, particularly with uh, if you're a fan of the Amazon series, The Boys, if you have a character you'd like to see a matchup from that against someone in a hypothetical 24-game match, let us know. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one other final thought before we move on uh, that I had about this matchup is it would be a really interesting crew of, like, like seconds or, like, the team for Elsa. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you'd have, like, uh, Olaf, who's, like, a, a happy-go-lucky snowman to keep it light. 
um, just kind of like inject the humor, you know, make late night food runs. One of the, for the, for the team. <laughs> uh Yeah. And then, you know, you'd also have like, um, like Anna, and then there's like some magical trolls that seem to have a lot of wisdom. Anyway, long story short, I think it'd be a really great match. I'll just leave it there. I don't want to predict the winner. Hmm. Interesting. If magic were allowed, obviously, I think we have to give the edge to Elsa, but you could you right. could have like a rules contract where that's like not not a thing. Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, we there. Yeah, we'd also have to take on this sort of magical entourage and all these trolls and such. But yeah, yeah, it might, might be doable. Um, okay, final segment, and this one should also be pretty quick, which is this month in chess. Um, there's a huge elephant in the room, which we're not going to really touch or comment on too much. Uh, which, of course, is the largest chess scandal in history, should be noted. Whatever we say is, of course, our opinions and solely our own. It does not represent the opinion of U.S. chess, its subsidiaries, affiliates, uh, members or minions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, so on and so forth. Uh, But the part of this that I want to touch on is the fake news part. Gopal, I'm sure you have seen. I'm sure you have seen. I saw it on Forbes.com for crying out loud and like reputable major news sites. There was a British comedy hour show that had that discussed it. Um, Basically. A response to a tweet that was a joke has become a global, truly global, huge news story, which from my perspective is both hilarious and absurdly depressing. And Mm -hmm. that is. The idea that one, anyone could potentially use vibrating anal beads to cheat at chess. (laughs) Right, exactly. How is this a story? How is this even a thing? How did people not look at this? I mean, that sounds like an onion headline. Right. It sounds like something that you would read in like reddit.com slash r slash humor. Like somebody's just like, you're pulling my anarchy chess, right? Yeah, you've just. Although this is better than 98% of the. stuff out there and but so like to the see that, that with it. to see that headline and like actually think that it could potentially have any merit at all like how did this become such a big thing i cannot wrap my head around it well i mean you know chess kind of uh in many ways has a reputation as somewhat of a, a stuffy game um i mean the image is changing a little bit gradually um over the last few years no pun intended on stuffy Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah. So the idea, um, so since this is so like out there and absurd and it's almost like um, paradoxical to people's like general perception of chess and chess players, is that the idea? Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. I mean, it's just such a unique idea, but like, I'm, but that's what I wanted to ask you. Like, what was the tone of this article? Like, I mean, I haven't even bothered to read so, I mean, what, I, what I've seen are real, like, actual news articles. And I, um, some of them just mention that, like, oh, there's this big scandal going on. But a, a large number of them mention this particular embarrassing detail um, as, as if it is just part of the news story. Mm-hmm. And it's not. So, so to, to the best of my knowledge, the, where it began, where this rumor or, like, this... Um, hilarious suggestion as to as to how one might potentially receive assistance in a chess game began was in a Twitter thread. So someone had just you know made a tweet about whatever, and some other user replied a couple tweets later 
you know, jokingly, what if it was, what if it was this, right? What if he, what if he was using right. some kind of vibrating, you know, whatever. And that was the end of it. Or so I thought, and then like two weeks later, it's picked up by like every global news agency everywhere. Um, which is in my view, like absolutely hilarious. And you know what else it makes me think of if something like that can happen with chess, where we know it's like demonstrably false and not just demonstrably false, but like demonstrably absurd. Uh-huh. And it gets picked up and becomes like a global news item as if it's real. How often does that happen with like real actual news? QAnon? Just any, anything, any right. real actual news where, you know, somehow either via social media or what have you, they latch on to a figment or an element of the story that is beyond absurd, but it becomes like a real news thing. That's kind of almost daunting to think about, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like we see it pretty often, you know? Um, I mean, even yeah. like, right. With so much information, it's just weird um, when, it, when it comes home to something that you feel oh, is like right. kind of like For your sure. little niche niche. Mm-hmm. Right? Hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of people in general don't really know how to research things very well, obviously. So yeah, I mean, I, it, I'm not surprised. Uh, I mean, if Inspector anything, Menon, kind of, we need you getting getting this uh, this research in order. It, right. I mean, I'm kind of, uh, if anything, more annoyed just because, like, reach a out lot to of us. My Paul friends, will be happy to refute your silly chess article. Right. Like, if I'm, you know, like a lot of my friends that are normies, for instance, <laughs> they'll be at like, yes, just, you get asked about it, right? I got asked yes, about it at the barber the other week, day, and I'm just like, dude, oh my god, stop! Like, it's not real. Like. I got I asked about my it life at the and one of my good friends came up with it. Like, okay, can we, can you leave me alone now? Thanks. Was it? Yeah. I think it was JJ. Right. I think, JJ or, or JJ, maybe a, yeah. a tw- maybe it was a response to a JJ tweet uh-huh. at chess fields on Twitter. Yeah. And you just, I mean, my, my reaction now has just become, you know, like, really, do you think that that's, do you think that that's likely? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Like, is that how someone would choose to go about that? Right. And then you have to, and then like, of course the, the whole thing, like, uh, like how would somebody even cheat in chess you're like oh like why did i why was i even born you know you just ver- vocalized the the sound that my soul makes yes exactly yeah. <laughs> all right that's the one big news item from this month in chess and of course there's a lot uh surrounding that as well but it's interesting to see how this weird uh random tweet or rather reply to a tweet within a thread of tweets has blown up to the point where the global community is talking about whether or not any particular person may be able to receive auxiliary information uh, through vibrations in their butt. Um, uh-huh. I can't believe that I'm even saying that sentence, uh, but here we are in 2022. Did you have that on your bing- bingo card, Gopal? 2022 bingo card? Um, Talk yes. about... <laughs> I think so. Man, so you you have to by now with all of the stuff that has happened this year, you but have to have scored my, a bingo. But somebody else's, just right? To, yes, just to yeah. clarify. Yeah, random person X will will uh, right. Yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. Well, you must have hit a bingo by now, then, because there's no way you could get that square filled in and not have a bingo. Well, are you one of those people who just like keeps the cards so you can admire your bingo and don't actually turn it in for the prize? Um. Or do you I don't like know. leap, I'm leap one out of, those... of your chair and yell bingo and run up to the front of the room? Uh, 
If you're asking me, am I the kind of person that likes to keep trophies from my your bingo or conquest? Yeah. Then, or if bingo experiences, if that's what we're <laughs> any victory or conquest, any victory. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, I like. I enjoy keeping my trophies. Okay. All right. On that note, um, we got to wrap it up. Go, Paul. This has been a blast as always. Again, big shout out to you at Chess Essentials. Thank you for the kind words. Uh, big shout out and to Chess Journalists. Congratulations to you. Uh, me? What did I? What did I do? You're an award-winning uh, podcast host. Oh yeah, so. but again, not, and not critically acclaimed. Um, congrat- yeah, sure. Congratulate. We self-congratulate because that's the cool thing to do. All the cool, cool kids are doing it. Um, but Hashtag no, thank, thank self-care. you. Self-care. <laughs> a sincere thank you to Chess Journalists of America. They're a great organization. Um, they review a lot of work. Uh, I know they have a lot of submissions and they are very diligent about it. So thank you very much, Chess Journalists of America. Keep doing what you do. It's nice to It's nice to have an organization like that. Honestly, I can say as someone who used to write chess articles a lot, um, you know, just the readership you would you would get uh, from from that organization alone was fantastic, and some of yes. the feedback. And uh, the so chi- and as that. the children say, game recognize game. <laughs> Indeed, so we do recognize their game. Uh, thanks again, CJA. Uh, keep up the good work. Uh, we look forward to uh, seeing you at next year's U.S. Open. Go, Paul. You want to say bye bye? Bye bye. It's the same thing to my two year old. All right. Have a good one, everybody. Catch you next month. Thank you for listening to The Chess Underground, a U.S. chess podcast. Please check out our entire suite of podcasts, which release every Tuesday, and include Ladies' Night with Jen Shahad, as well as Chess Life cover stories and One Move at a Time with Dan Lucas. U.S. Chess would like to thank Jason Andre at Seven Season Films Photography and Media for a podcast production and editing. If you are starting your own podcast, visit www.sevenseasonfilms.com for consulting, production, and editing. Until next time, signing off, Pete Karyanis.